I sat with uh, these readings for the greater part of this week, not having anything come to mind, only trying to empathize with the prophet Jeremiah, who is called terror on every side by the people of Israel. He's a prophet that ends up being killed by his own people, yet he burns within him to speak the word of the Lord. And so trying to empathize with him, what would that be like to burn so deeply with the word of the Lord, knowing that you're going to say something that is unpopular, that is largely rejected by God's own people? And it wasn't until this afternoon that I recognize there is one topic that burns within me deeply, that burns within the heart of the church deeply, because it regards the church's greatest treasure, Jesus' body and blood in the Eucharist. And so I want to address who can receive communion, or rather, I'd like to address more specifically, receiving communion in a state of mortal sin. What are very commonly confessed mortal sins and how to move on from them appropriately? So first, receiving communion in a state of mortal sin. This topic is one that at face value might seem like a very confusing teaching of the church. Is not Christ present in the sacrament of Holy Communion? If he is, and you say he is, then why wouldn't he want to forgive me of my sins? Why shouldn't I be able to receive him whenever I receive Holy Communion? And it's a layered question, or it's a layered answer, rather. Because whenever Christ resurrects from the dead and then ascends, he leaves to us not one sacrament, but several sacraments, so that we can share in his grace and share in his life. One of them that is known by the revelation of scripture and tradition is the sacrament of confession. Scripturally, John chapter 20, verse 19, where he tells the apostles who are going to confect his body and blood in the same upper room whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. That is, if the apostles and their successors do not forgive the sins then they are not forgiven. Now, to answer the question more intelligently and not just within scripture and tradition, but to explain why that is, St. Thomas Aquinas points out that while Christ was on earth before his death, he was a, quote, sin bearer. That is, he bore the sins of humanity within his own flesh. He had yet to die. And so whenever humanity touches him, like the woman hemorrhaging touches his garment, he is the woman is healed. But notice the next person, after he rises from the dead, who touches him without solicitation. And that is Mary Magdalene, to whom Jesus says, Do not touch me, woman. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. What Christ does now that he has died bearing our sins and then risen from the dead is that he's given the power over for forgiveness of sins 
to those who are going to continue his ministry on earth, the apostles, whose sins they forgive are forgiven them, whose sins they retain are retained. Now, Thomas goes on to talk about why this is, saying that the food is for the living. If we are in mortal sin, then we are spiritually dead. Giving food to a corpse is pointless. It is to waste the food. And the food that we are dealing here with is the very body and blood of Christ. And Christ himself says not to throw the pearls before the swine. And so for that reason, we do not want to commit sacrilege against the body of the Lord. But even for a deeper reason, St. Paul says that those who receive the body and blood of the Lord unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is, as if they had crucified the Lord in his body and blood. That is a hefty statement, again, found in the Bible, not something that the church made up. This is real, and it's really, truly, one of the gravest sins that we can commit. And so, why is this such a big deal? The Pew report that came out several years ago mentioned that about 20-something percent of practicing Catholics believe that the sacrament of the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of the Lord. That's not good. But I did a little bit of crunching a couple years ago and found out that with as many confessions as we hear, that we probably hear about 20% of the confessions of those who come to Mass over the weekend. I don't think that that's like a weird coincidence. Whenever we stop going to confession and continue to receive the Eucharist, even in a state of mortal sin, we lose faith in the Eucharist. If we truly believe it's the body and blood of the Lord, then we're not going to receive him if we're not in communion with him. That's an insult to him. And so what do we do? We treat the Eucharist like a nice merit badge, like a token for those who are good boys. Or we're embarrassed because we don't want to stick out to our friends or our family whenever we go to church. But then we have more concern about ourselves and our own reputation than we do for the Lord's body. And that chips away at our faith in the Eucharist slowly and gradually until we no longer believe Jesus is truly there. And it's a nice symbol or a nice expression that we do as Catholics. And so what are the mortal sins that we need to confess? I couldn't go over all of the mortal sins. It's too much. Um, there's this movement or has been this movement within Catholic morality called casuistry in which they tried to decide we're going to look at every evil committed on a case-by-case basis and determine what not to do. That moral movement has failed. What we need to do instead is take the narrow gate and pursue Christ himself. But there are commonly confessed mortal sins or commonly committed mortal sins that are worth discussing. 
So I'm going to go through the Ten Commandments and talk about some commonly committed or commonly confessed mortal sins in descending order. So the first commandment shall um, love the Lord your God and you shall have no idols placed before him. This is not commonly done, but commonly enough. The use of tarot cards, the use of horoscopes, the use of Ouija boards, all undermine the providence of God and are an offense to him. Secondly, the use of the Lord's name in vain, while if we use it in passing, is not a grave sin, but still offensive because it is the holy name of the Lord, if we use the Lord's name angrily or blasphemously, it is a grave sin and needs to be confessed. A great way to stop doing this is to bring out the old swear jar, where every time that you say that or a foul word, put a dollar away, and you will either be poor or you will have a clean tongue. It does work. It works wonders, and it hurts. The third commandment, to keep the uh, Sabbath day holy. So we are obligated to attend Sunday Mass. Because Sunday Mass is the continuation of the sacrifice of the Lord. And it is on the day that he defeated death. Now the keeping of Sunday Mass is not substituted by live streaming it or comfortably by sitting in the cafe and watching it. Cafe is for people who have children and to be used as a cry room for a time. It's not a legitimate substitute to miss the sacrifice that continues here in this church building. Keeping the Lord's day holy. It is a commandment because Jesus wants to share his sacrifice with us. The fourth commandment, to honor our father and mother. This is the first of the neighborly commandments because our father and our mothers are the people who reflect to us the paternity of God, the very fatherhood of God, and instill in us this reverence towards him. And so grave disrespect, uh, fighting, bickering, these can be serious sins, and with our siblings as well. In regards to the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of content under this sin that needs to be aware of and being talked about. Some more grave than others. The first among them is, is abortion. That abortion is a grave sin. But also the plan B pill and oral abortifacient contraception. Many oral contraceptives that are taken are what are called abortifacient. And many people do not know this. That if a zygote is formed, then the uterine wall will dry up to make sure that implantation cannot take place, in which case a human life is lost. This is a grave evil and is sadly something that we lack education on. In other respects, there is, and in much lower regard, Serious insults, as the Lord says, whoever calls your brother Raka or fool is liable to the Sanhedrin or liable to Gehenna. There's physical violence, but there's also a violence that is done to oneself. 
And this especially is in regard to drunkenness, which is a mortal sin, and which is a common sin. And it's sadly common to our Cajun culture. And it's something that's celebrated too often, or joked about too often when someone has fallen to a grave sin. There's no other grave sin that we love to joke and laugh about at someone else's expense. And with this sin, it's also noted, it's not a sin only if you do something stupid after. It is a sin in itself. Because by drunkenness, I temporarily handicap the image of God within me. In the sense that I lose control of my reason, which is that faculty within me that makes me most like God. And after drunkenness and less common drug abuse, but it is becoming more and more common, especially with the use and maybe the progressive legalization of marijuana, that if people are becoming high regularly or just high in general, then there is that same loss of the seed of reason. There's the same loss of sobriety. And for that, that deformation of the image and likeness of God within us, And so this, as well, is a habit that needs to be broken and a sin that needs to be confessed. In regards to the Sixth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, the sins of lust. We obviously know that fornication is a grave sin, but all actions out of lust that would include things of a lesser degree that I don't want to get into, are included in that sin. That also means actions with oneself that are impure, such as masturbation. Itself is a grave sin, and it needs to be confessed, and is often uh, coupled with the consumption of adult explicit material, which is an addiction that plagues our church across both genders. This is a sin that needs to be brought to confession regularly. It's something for which we need to remove the stigma from confessing because it is such a severe and powerful addiction so that it can be overcome so that um, we can all live in the light. After this, there is the use of contraceptives, sterilizations. All of these are both Um, sins against chastity as they reduce the meaning of the sexual act as rendering it not open to life. With the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal, it may be a commandment that we think we don't commit often, or perhaps we've never committed in our life. But one of the most rampant and shameless sins on college campuses is cheating. And cheating is a slow burn of stealing a college degree, saying that we are educated in this regard while never having proved it, perhaps because we've cheated over and over and over again. Serious cheating is in serious need of confessing. After the seventh commandment comes the eighth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. This includes serious lies, lies about, Um, a grave sin, perhaps. Maybe it's lying about having missed a mass or lying about a certain grave sin that I've committed, but it also can be lying about serious matters. This also has to do with 
things that we can speak truthfully, the things that we can speak cruelly. And that's about slander. Specifically, slandering someone based off of a mortal sin they've committed. If we slander someone, not for the building up of the kingdom of God, but out of either cruelty, curiosity, or just passing the time, saying this person did X on the weekend, then we share in that same guilt. And that is a sin that needs to be confessed. Slander tears apart communities and tears apart trust. And then with regard to envy, jealousy, and greed in the 10th commandment, thou shalt not cover one's neighbor's goods. This is a sin that is a lot harder to pinpoint about where it becomes grave. But we do know that in Matthew 25, that the Lord will hold us accountable, that if we never support the poor, do anything to help clothe the naked, feed the hungry, visit the imprisoned, visit the sick, then we will be liable to judgment as the goats are at the end of Matthew 25. And lastly, what to do about this? We know we have to confess these sins, but I do want to challenge um, just myself and this community that perhaps we don't use the sacrament of confession rightly. We can use the sacrament um, very conveniently without embracing the cross that comes with the sacrament. I think of uh, Peter in this gospel today, who is so allergic to the cross that he says, God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you, that the Lord would suffer for us. But the Lord suffers for us, and Peter denies Jesus of this suffering because Peter doesn't want to suffer. And there's a suffering that comes with the sacrament of confession. And it looks like this. It's the suffering of real contrition. Because real contrition is not simply feeling kind of bad for what I've done, but it's making what's called a firm purpose of amendment. A real desire to change and to move on from the sins that I've committed. And the church has used two ways to describe this firm purpose of amendment being expressed. And that's through imperfect contrition, in which I go to confession out of a fear of hell, or perfect contrition, which I go, out of con- go to confession out of a love for God. But it's come to my attention more and more, and I don't know what to think about this third way that we frequent the sacrament of confession. And that is, I go to confession simply because I want to receive communion. I go to confession simply because I want to receive communion. This motive doesn't necessarily mean that I plan to stop sinning right when I walk out of the confessional. It just means that this Mass, I want to receive Jesus. And that could be for a host of reasons, but normally it's just because I don't want to be embarrassed. I'm either with a friend or I'm with my family and I want to be able to receive Jesus. Or it's to satisfy my own pride that I'm not going to go or remain in my pew and be humbled in that manner. But if there's no firm purpose of amendment, this is not a valid reason. 
we need to be able to make a real desire, not simply to confess, but also to repent when we go to confession. If we make that effort, the Lord gives us the grace. He's already offering it to us through the sacrament. And so the Lord does all of these things, and he suggests to Peter that he must go to the cross because he wants to offer him life, because he wants to offer him everything. What kind of authentic friendship is there if I'm not invited into the Lord's sufferings as well as his joys? He wants us to be with him in all. And the suffering that might come now is a drop in the bucket and is incomparable with the glory that is to come. And so we ask that the Lord who offers us his body and blood can instill within us a great devotion to the sacredness of the gift that he offers us in his cross. That we can have a true awareness, an honest and humble repentance of our sins, and that we can remain faithful to him and not be afraid to have him purify our hearts so that he can be one with us in this most blessed sacrament.